everyone, and thank you for the download. It's Saturday, May 9th, and this is episode 22 of the Marty Called Podcast. I'm Tim Grassi, and today I'm joined by my co-host, the Sultan Asaki. What's up, Josh? So, it feels so good to be within two feet of you again. <laughs> Everybody's hugging. <laughs> and Skipper Ben, what's up, Ben? You know, honestly, after the last, like, three Jungle Cruise-centric episodes of the show, I feel like I've done way too much of the heavy lifting. <laughs> so, uh, just giving you guys a heads up now. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm drinking, and you guys are talking, so get to it. <laughs> I don't like the sound uh, of that. We're going to start the show off with, I guess, some good news. Uh, it does sound like praying mantises will eat the murder hornets, so we have that going for us. Uh, we also have Shanghai Disney reopening uh, May 11th, so Ben, plan your trip there. And Disney Springs is reopening May 20th. But uh, the gist of this show is one that we've wanted to do for a couple of weeks now, and actually, uh, basically, as soon as the park's closed, we wanted to talk about the logistics of reopening. Uh, we will try to do so without any political leanings leaking through, but... Whatever. Uh, <laughs> try, to, try to look at the various factors uh, across uh, all platforms as to what, what Disney will need to do, what theme parks in general will need to do to reopen. Um, Josh was able to uh, get us some internal information on this, and I won't get into too much detail as to what that was, but it gave us uh, kind of a springboard for what some of the expectations are. Uh, there is no time frame as of, t- as of when we're recording this for when Disney World or Disneyland would reopen. Um, pure speculation, I would expect Disney World to open much sooner than Disneyland. I don't know if you guys have any insight either way, but it seems that Florida uh, is far more willing to uh, uh, to, to open up their parks than California is. Excellent dance around the politics. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I would certainly agree with that. Plus, California is known to the state of California to cause cancer, so there's that. It's true. <laughs> Disneyland, Disneyland sucks anyway. This is a Disney World podcast, so who cares? <laughs> we've, we've discussed uh, things kind of loosely about this in the last few episodes, but uh, I think the first thing to kick it off would be do you open all four parks? Do you think that's something that is a realistic proposal? I don't think that there's any uh, advantage to jumping off the cliff here as opposed to dipping their toe in more slowly. Um, So if I were an ops person uh, or a management person and simply trying to figure out a strategy to go from being at a dead stop to being back to full speed, I don't think the way that I would uh, choose to do that would be to go from zero to hero instantly. So I would pick a park and we can discuss what sort of strategic, uh, you know, approach we might take to that. Uh, Spoiler alert, I think Magic Kingdom is the one to open first. Um, (laughs) Yep. Even though I honestly don't think that strategically it's probably the best choice, um, although there's some construction going on at Epcot that might make that a, a worse choice. But certainly from a population density versus available space, Epcot would ordinarily be a good choice, but I, I don't even know what condition it's in right now. Um, but no, World I think showcase that, is fine. True. Um, I definitely think that there's an advantage to be had by ramping up over time, learning the lessons in terms of how, how to control people, there's also a variable here that nobody knows yet, which is what the public's reaction is actually going to be. Right. What's um, the actual demand? Right. And, and how, how are the people who do want to go, how amenable are they going to be to having their experience be completely different? So it's going to be, this is a first, uh, you know, a case of first impression, so to speak. There, there's no precedent right. for it. There's doesn't matter how smart you are. You can't always predict what the behavior of a, of a large group of people is going to be. So I would start slowly and ramp up. 
Well, you said World Showcase uh, was okay, but that's only really from the sense of a construction standpoint. I don't see how they could open Epcot uh, anytime soon based on the furloughed employees and the closing of the International College Program that, you know, they use primarily to staff those pavilions over there. If they were to open, you know, any on any kind of, you know, somewhat quick time frame by midsummer, they would have had to have been already hiring in that process to bring some of those international students uh, right. and, and employees back over, unless they just fundamentally change the way they run World Showcase, which is definitely an option to where... I think that's a realistic option as well. I mean, everything has to be on the table at this point, right? I, I think so yep. as well. Uh, so, But based on just kind of that information that we know of how they closed the parks and, and relieved cast members of their duties and positions... Uh, I don't see there's any way they could open all four at one time. They just they, they just won't have the manpower to do that. So right. a, a staggered, slow opening start is, is what I would do. And touching on what Josh said, you know, trying to judge the appetite of people and, and, and how they would want to experience the parks in a situation like that. I have a trip, you know, lined up for July 15th that we are actively looking to get everything canceled and everything set straight because for that reason, I, I do think there's a very good chance the parks are open during that time. But, I do. you know, at limited capacity at one or two parks per day, is that the kind of vacation I want to have, uh, especially at the probably not discounted rate that Disney will not roll out there uh, during that time period? Uh, so yeah, I think you have to do the smart thing and the, the thing and based on the last earnings report, they've got to get those parks back open running you know, as soon as possible, uh, based on their bottom lines, uh, and, and they're going to want to get everything opened as fast as they can, but like they got to do the smart thing and, and do it at a slow, uh, planned stra- uh, strategic way. So, uh, Josh, you touched on something about magic kingdom might not necessarily be the park that is best suited to open first from a, uh, infrastructure standpoint. But it's the one that's going to have the highest demand, obviously. Yeah. Um, I think we can look at the, the – we we know that there are going to be certain things as you get a little bit deeper that, all right, everybody's going to have to wear masks. There's going to have to be some level of uh, queue management that's going to be established. We'll get into that later. Uh, just thinking, you know, the 50,000-foot view of the parks themselves, Magic Kingdom as a – as demand would see it, would be the park to open. And if you're going to open one more or two more, um, Ben, you hit on it. I don't know that Epcot is in a state right now that uh, with the construction, with the fact that you don't have the cast members that normally staff it uh, available, that's the one that to me seems like a no-brainer not to open at the outset. Um the other two, uh, I think Animal Kingdom is probably the park that's best suited to spread Absolutely. out crowds. Yep. Um, and I want the, to get into the why of that after you're done. Yeah, we, we, we can. Uh, the, the, the problem there is that where the demand would be at the Animal Kingdom uh, would be things that you really can't socially distance people yep. on. And that's gonna, that's going to be the paradox of all of this is that yeah. it, it's real easy to just look at the square footage you have available in a park and say, well, this one can hold X number of people. Um, yeah. But the thing is, you're not going to get a homogenous distribution. You're going to get people aggregating at the things that are that draw them. And the fewer of those things that there are, the more the larger the concentrations of people are going to be. So I agree completely. That's a problem with Animal Kingdom. And then with Hollywood Studios, everything is indoors in that park. 
everything. So that creates its own problems. But uh, looking at all of it logistically, I, I think we're, we're all in agreement that at most open three parks, um, and probably only two, at least to start, and see did where either, the band is. Did either of you watch the uh, video that came out this morning from Shanghai Disneyland of the – it was three minutes of no. pr- procedures for guests uh, entering the park and the screenings that they would have to go through and then the different things that they would – experience you know while boarding attractions and doing stuff and one thing i did find very interesting in that video is one of the attractions that they showed people queuing up in and boarding was their pirates of the caribbean ride which is a completely indoor attraction and the thing that they showed on there was the staggering of rows on the boats so every other row would uh have guests on it and based on the boat that they showed it was it was about three rows of guests uh per boat that were, that were going. So I don't know if their standards would be different than what's been discussed over here. I think the talk of, you know, indoor attractions and shows, those being maybe off the table, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case when Shanghai opens up on the 20th, at least based on their initial uh, instructional video that, that uh, another one that was on there was their Buzz Lightyear attraction. And they showed gloves being handed out to guests before they boarded to grab the guns that shot. But again, another attraction that's completely indoors. Uh, There was no limitations outside of just the every other row, every other car uh, boarding for guests to, to, to get them in there. So I think that would, not necessarily if they went on those standards that would make Hollywood Studios a uh, much more desirable place to open with the with the based on the attractions that they have at this time that pirates ride i believe those boats are bigger than the Florida and California counterparts and it is one of the most efficient rides in the world if i'm not mistaken and it's it's something where like from a capacity standpoint one of the closest comps is probably like Kilimanjaro Safaris, where you could, as Ben just suggested, stagger every other row. And still, while not good for that individual attraction, still good from a capacity standpoint, satisfy certain things. Um, looking at It's a Small World and Pirates, those boats have six rows. So, all right, you can in theory do that at half capacity. Um, but something like uh, Frozen Ever After, doing that at half capacity is a killer to that attraction. Um, so uh, these are all things that absolutely have to be considered. And none of these rides were designed with a pandemic in mind. So trying to figure out how to space people out, uh, what do you do from a, all right, if you've got a family of 12 that's going there, do you necessarily need to separate them across the entire boat or could you put them in the front three rows and somebody else in the sixth row? Like, can you get away with that sort of thing? Um, These are all things that people making 12 bucks an hour probably aren't smart enough to be uh, given the keys to the liquor cabinet to do it. Oddly oddly enough, one of their newest attractions actually kind of is uh, uh, a... friendly to, to social distancing with rise of the resistance and the individual little cells that you're in and, and you board the vehicle in your own individual areas, you actually could uh, conceivably have it to where a f- one family goes into the interrogation room and one family boards in an area and you're not part of any groups with any other guests because of the way you're split off from each other through, uh, through lots of areas of that attraction. You say that and they've run that uh, under normal operations where they've bypassed that first um, uh, that first experience, which I believe holds like 48 people in a single area as it mm-hmm. transfers onto the uh, destroyer. 
Um, I would think that if they are to open um, Hollywood Studios and Rise of the Resistance, they would probably have to bypass that area because, or at least significantly reduce the number of people in that uh, uh, approach to the Star Destroyer. Because well, again, you, I'm sorry. Go, as I say, going back to that Shanghai video, it did show queue processes, and throughout the queue lines, it wasn't that they were keeping people away from each other. It was much more emphasis on the six feet of space, okay. uh, and so there were markings on handrails and their markings on the ground, telling people where they could and couldn't stand. Uh, so it wasn't doing like the. I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit of like you know the completely virtual queue option where nobody's standing in line. They do. They are at least on the Shanghai side taking the time to mark throughout the queue uh, areas. So even in that 48 person, cut that by half and then have designated areas for small groups or families to stand, yeah. you maybe could still do that part of the experience by, okay. by just marking the areas in there for people to go. Again, it wasn't like they were afraid of the enclosed areas and the tight spaces. It was just as long as you were spaced out in those spaces appropriately is the way that they're looking to do it. So that's that's the biggest logistical thing, I think, that can the parks realistically operate with six-foot social distancing rules? And if you have uh, crowd flow governed where you walk down Main Street and the right side is coming into the park, the left side is going out, uh, those types of things will help. But it's pretty much unrealistic to have six-foot social distancing uh, barriers around guests in walking areas. I think you can better govern it in queues and and perhaps in restaurants. I I just don't see a realistic way to do it in in guest pathways. Well, I, I, this is a good point, as any. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to what Here order we go. To, to approach these topics <laughs> in because it's so yeah. circular. I, I think that's part of the challenge <laughs> we're having with this episode. But I, I think that there's two things that are happening here. There, number and it's the best analogy I could come up with is the. Uh, creation of the TSA after 9-11, mm-hmm. there's two simultaneous objectives that are trying to be met here. One is actually mitigating the spread of the <laughs> coronavirus. Theater and the second, actually, yes. <laughs> and the second ob- agenda that, that clearly is there, whether we want to admit it or not, is one of optics. They're trying to yeah. create a perception that it is safe to go resume life on Earth. And the problem is that it's difficult to tell when you look at any individual policy, which one of those objectives it's primarily intended to serve. Um, and uh, you were very polite in how you addressed the, or, you know, uh, you know, trying to protect my source with regard to this document, but I, I, I will, I'm certainly not going to say where I got it, but I got it from an industry insider who doesn't work for Disney. Um, and it's actually, it's IAPA's reopening guidance. Um, that was released by IAPA, which for anyone who doesn't know, it's what is it? The International Association of uh, yeah. There's a convention in Orlando every year. House of Pancakes. In, in, I think it's amusement parks <laughs> yes, and attractions. Pancakes. So that, <laughs> pancakes. Yes. International yes. amusement house of pancakes and tires. So, so this is basically a, you know an industry trade group that that pretty much all of the big amusement operators are a part of. Um, and this was a document that was, it was produced by them. It was created in conjunction with an epidemiologist. It had, there's a, uh, a references page in the back that shows what groups had. An epidemiologist, had. of course, is somebody that can read minds. Continue. Correct. Thank yes. you for clarifying that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it shows a list of all the contributors and pretty much all of the big ones were there. Uh, Universal, Cedar Fair, Six Flags of notable absence was Disney. They, they right. apparently were not a contributor to it, which I, I thought was somewhat interesting. Um, 
and I, I was given this and I, I read the whole thing cover to cover twice uh, because I wanted to take notes. And the first time I read it, I was on the toilet and I didn't have a pen. Um, but it's, it lays out in what I would call uh, punishing detail <laughs> what can best be described as common sense. Um, there's nothing in there that I think is terrifically profound in terms of, oh, this is how they're going to do it. Um, what, what is interesting, though, is when you see it laid out in such formal ways, what the ideologies underlying these policies are, it really does betray some of the logical fallacies that are, that are present within them. And, and what you just said um, it, about not being able to provide the correct social distancing in a, in a you know, functional way it is probably the most obvious example of that. And if I can, will you indulge me to let me give you an example of that? Sure. So if you go to page 13 of this document, I realize you don't have it. It lays out a formula for determining what the capacity of an individual venue should be. And the way that it goes about doing that is taking the total square footage of the venue and then assuming that there is a, a bubble around each person of approximately 36 square feet, which would give you six feet in every direction, meaning that everyone has that bubble around them. Yep. If your bubbles came right adjacent to each other, you would have exactly six feet between you. So the, the model that they're using is take the total amount of square footage, divide it by 36, and that gives you the new COVID-19 compliant capacity for the venue. <laughs> but again, that assumes a complete and perfectly equal distribution of people throughout that space, which is obviously right. not what's going to happen. So the way that they seem to have attempted to mitigate this glaring logical deficiency is they said, well, we're going to distinguish amusement type venues as being different from most of the other things in the world, because they are things that are typically frequented by families, people who are housed together at the same time, they're already exposed to each other, so they don't need to be socially distanced from each other. So they're essentially saying that they're going to overcome the error and unequal distribution by the fact that some of that a large number of these people who are lumped together have already been exposed to each other anyway. So there's a it, in one of the opening statements, I actually highlighted it because I thought it was so funny. Um, I don't know if I can find it quickly, but it says, oh, yeah, the considerations in this document are aimed to focus on medical science and operational expertise rather than general perceptions. But when you go on to read it, it's overwhelmingly focused on things that create public perception of things being done in a way that is safe. So. I don't know what the point of this rant is other than to say that all of the things that we discussed are, it's sort of just, it's, it's a, like a magic trick. There's, there's an illusion going on here that we have to acknowledge. And I, you know, there's going to be people who are screaming at their radios as they listen to this saying that some of the stuff that we're talking about isn't going to do anything to actually make a difference. And yes, I agree with you. Certainly. I'm not going to speak for Timber Ben, uh, but that's the world that we're in. There is the the term that Wakefield likes to use is security theater, and that's exactly what we're discussing. It's a perfect yeah. term, and it's that's exactly what it is. There is a component of this that has that to it, and like, and I'm not going to 100 percent dismiss that. You know, TSA's security theater, as we've dubbed it, or even theme park security theater, is useless. But it is that is what is there to make you feel good, and then there are. Uh, cameras and plainclothes security and other things going on that are actually taking care of the bulk and the harder work for security. Sure. 
So, well, I mean, so the, beauty, two, the beauty of it is that every time a plane isn't hijacked, TSA wins. <laughs> you know, right, there, there's right. no metric by which to measure the success of, a, of an organization like that. You can only measure its failure. So if the parks reopen and there's not a massive outbreak and there's, you know, not a significant negative news cycle about people getting infected after going to Disney, then all of these policies will be hailed as being tremendously successful, which probably means it'll be really difficult for us to ever get rid of them. So that's the, that is the intractable downside of this is that it is much easier uh, for these things to come into the world than it ever is to get rid of them, uh, yeah. which is why, again, politics creeping in. You know, I hate shoehorn, uh, not shoehorn, but uh, knee-jerk react reactions creating new legislation because generally when you try to do things quickly, you end up creating unintended consequences that are sometimes worse than the thing you're trying to fix. And once those things are in place, getting rid of them is super hard to do. So I think there's actually a long-term threat to theme parks as we know them that is going to stem from this, regardless of the degree to which COVID-19 might actually be uh, as bad as it's been built up to be. Hey Silver guys, lining, I, I think there's a positivity there. But anyway, sorry, Ben. <laughs> I, I just wanted to say if if at any point we feel like this episode is getting too intellectual or highbrow or political, I'm drinking plenty and I do have my Jungle Cruise script over here again if we want to read it at the end of the episode. And we can we can uh, we can we can at least do that at the end. Just to, I'm just putting it out there. If you want me to keep drinking and get drunk and, and tell bad jokes again, I actually printed notes because I like the sound of Ben's page turning so much last episode that <laughs> I wanted you to be wanted able to, to partake in that. So. <laughs> You're not the only Makes one. <laughs> I've got a whole ream of fun here for you. Perhaps we should uh, maybe, maybe make this a little bit page. lighter. Episode um, name is Page Turner. <laughs> uh, That's actually to, a porn star. I can see that. Let's look at her. Hold on. <laughs> um, Your computer's to, already uh, toxic. Uh, to getting into our uh, uh, deep heated political discussion, deep uh, and Josh, I'll throw in uh, I'll throw in sports here too, so you'll really oh, be, be better. So I th- Ben, you can you can uh, agree with this or not, but the, the goal of a referee or an umpire is to is to go unnoticed. And I think, uh, Josh, you are very much in favor of minimalistic government, is my yes. understanding. That is, uh, you, you have not misunderstood really? me, my friend. <laughs> uh, so that, you, that in a crisis, you don't want your government to just F things up more. Correct. Um, so dancing away from the actual uh, uh, political suggestions there and going into uh, this from a security standpoint, from a guest safety standpoint with a Disney theme park. Uh, the goal here is how much are you willing to put uh, the onus on the actual guests themselves mm-hmm. or how much of that responsibility is on Disney to kind of um, find the balance there. And they've had things like uh, on, a, on a cruise ship and any cruise ship, They'll do uh, hand hand sanitation stations uh, at any food area. I think those are the types of normal um, theater type things that do have a function that we're going to see. That we're absolutely going to see a mandate for um, for face masks. We're going to see hand sanitizer stations probably at the exit and entrance of all attractions, shops, and restaurants. Uh, and those are going to be the primary guest optics that uh, we're going to see. Now the the Secondary question is what else can be done to minimize guest exposure to each other? Uh, and assuming that you're not going to get everybody uh, to be 100% clean, what, what else can be done to help 
beyond the theater aspect of things. What can Disney do? What can they ask guests to do? Well, they one thing I was thinking about that, you know, kind of goes along with the hand sanitizer stuff. And I've seen this thrown out there from a time or two, you know, they they were talking about how do you, you know, do you clean ride vehicles between every cycle and logistically, can they do that? Would they have somebody at load and un- between load and unload wiping down these at all times or at, before a guest boards the vehicle, do they have a station that has, san- you know, sanitized wipes that they then put it on the guest to grab the wipe? and wipe down their own spot. And at that point it's on the guests to do it. And I kind of agree with you. How much do they, do they push off on the guests so they can, you know, remove themselves necessarily from the responsibility. Uh, and I'm sure Josh will correct me here in a second, if they can even do that. It's, can they separate themselves uh, from some of these things that would put, you know, possibly make them liable uh, if somebody were to get sick in their parks? I think upon entrance of the park, they have to have some level of understanding that uh, this is a public place and public places uh, are more susceptible to you getting any disease, not just coronavirus. Um, But in terms of sanitizing seats, excuse me, perhaps on something like uh, Pirates or uh, uh, Small World where they have six rows in those seats, you could potentially get away with seating guests one, three, five, then two, four, six, but, um, and and then sanitizing the boat afterwards. But, um, I think when you're looking at water rides, especially trying to get a cast member in there to, to wipe down a a boat or say a splash mountain log where it's going to be soaked, (laughs) you're going to have people breaking legs and ankles pretty quickly if they're trying to do this and rushing through it. Uh, cause these things get slippery. Otherwise you're putting like skateboard tape on everything for, for better traction, Um, these are all just things that these parks weren't designed to do this. So trying to make them do this is, uh, is, is a tougher thing. And they may just decide that something like a water ride, like Splash Mountain, just, it's not a good idea to open that while we have these restrictions in place. Um, I I think they may have to make those harsh decisions. The paradox of this is that as you reduce the number of attractions, you're increasing the, the concentration of people, the attractions that are there. Um, you know, from a square footage perspective, Magic Kingdom's not ideal as a reopening mm-hmm. park. Uh, obviously, from a demand perspective, it is. But when you look at the number of attractions available, Magic Kingdom starts looking a lot better uh, right. because there is just so much to do there. And there are so many things that, uh, you know, draw people. And, um, you know, it, it'd be it's interesting to think about what things they could close and, and what the sort of cascade effect is of other attractions getting loaded up with people to close right. something like splash. I think, um, you know, that does suck in a lot of people. Um, right. and the problem that we're really facing here, it, it's almost like it's, it, it, one thing that I've observed in my life is that if you ever want to get people panicked and in a tizzy, make them afraid of something that they can't see, taste, touch or smell. Right. Um, you know, you, you have that basically shut down, you know, as big as climate change is as an issue in, in society today, um, nuclear power has essentially been stymied because people are terrified of it because it's this threat that yes, it's a real threat, uh, but what is, you know, the risk level is something that's subject to debate. But at the end of the day, this, this psychological aspect of that fear is very, very significant because it's this thing that's invisible. And we have that exact problem uh, with Corona. So the problem you have in my mind with something like deciding whether or not to reopen Splash Mountain is that if you 
if you take if you take the strategy that you suggested, which makes perfect sense to me, right? You alternate rows, which gives you two run throughs of each ride vehicle before it has to be wiped down. That makes perfect logical sense to me. Yeah. Does that actually impact the spread of this virus? I don't know. I don't think right, anyone knows, know. right? So that's the thing. It's like we're blind people trying to navigate this maze here. Um, and, and ultimately, I think, again, what it comes down to is, you know, what are guests going to think? Um, and I think the reality of it is that if you want to go to a theme park on the bleeding edge of these reopenings, you are taking some risk. And quantifying that is simply not doable. Um, so, you know, this sort of goes to Ben's comment about liability and, and your you know comment about strategy. You know, I think if you're willing to take that risk, then do it. Uh, I think that, you know, if, short of just gross negligence on Disney's park of not taking what seems to be reasonable steps, uh, it just is what it is. There's going to be some spread that happens because of people getting into these groups. I don't predict that it's going to be catastrophic, but I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't really know. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, like you said, do you, is it better to have people slipping and breaking their ankles trying to clean these things obsessively, or does it make more sense to, you know, clean them more in a way that, that reduces that harried pace so that people can do it more safely. And that, that's the delicate dance that Disney's going to, and all theme park operators are going to have to do in the coming months and maybe longer. And I don't mind them taking, you know, the precautionary measures, but kind of circling back to when this all started, do you guys remember the story that TMZ broke of the one guy who passed away from California, who was supposedly at the part at the magic kingdom, that final night that was packed, you know, shoulder to shoulder. Is that the only, I mean, have we heard of any more cases that could have happened from a, you know, at a time point where it was thought at least around that time that there was spread going, there was a lot going on yet. I just don't That's the think we've heard headlines much. Of, that, yeah. and, and if any place, Disney's going to make headlines. Uh, the, you know, su- the Super Bowl has made many a headlines about how uh, the San Francisco 49ers losing the Super Bowl hap- you know, helped with the mitigate the spread in California because they didn't have a parade. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, is there anything that we can take <laughs> from how no. the parks? No speculation going on there at all. Uh, no, no. Again, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting thought process, though. But the, you know, going going back to it how resembles the, parts, the thought process. Yeah, four percent <laughs> of a thought. There, there was no mitigation going on in the parks at all those no. last several days. Well, again, teetering on going into politics, uh, based on what I've seen, which you know, I have no idea the degree to which it's filtered or fair and unbiased, but it seems to me that the actual infection rate of this is extraordinarily high compared to what's being reported. Mm -hmm. Because it seems that there's a very high percentage of people that get it and are either completely asymptomatic or have such mild symptoms that they don't ever seek medical treatment. So, and and that would be great news for the world. It would be, uh, you know, a tragic condemnation of condemnation of what our government did, uh, in my opinion. But nonetheless, I think there's a, I think there's definitely evidence uh, that exists to suggest. Um, that we're not looking at a catastrophe when we reopen. And there probably was a, a significant number of uh, infections that were spread because of that night. But, you know, you don't hear about the ones unless they're catastrophic. So um, it, it's just, it's so easy. And, and I, what, what ben, the whole scenario that Ben just talked about is such a part of the problem because you look at it and you go, I can learn something about this disease and about the role of social interaction that plays in it because 
this happened and one person that we know of got infected. But the problem is you can't really learn anything about this disease from that because you don't know how many infections were spread that didn't mm -hmm. get reported. So it's like we don't have all the information. The information that we do have is, you know, at best incomplete and sometimes incorrect. And we're, we're somehow supposed to reconcile all of that and figure out what a good, reasonable, prudent person does when reopening one of these venues. And it's basically just a fool's errand that's absolutely impossible, which leads us with, as Wakefield calls it, and I agree, it's health theater. It's, yeah. you know, it's creating a perception in people that this is safe and that Disney is being safe. Uh, it, but it's all just, it's just an act. So if the... If you guys were Florida residents, you lived within half an hour of the parks, and the parks open tomorrow, would you go? Probably not. What would it take uh, sure. to let you go there? What would so, it take to get you through the door? I don't think my reason for go for not going would not be that I'm terrified of getting infected. It would be that it's just a simple risk-reward analysis. Sure. My, my desire to go uh, is not so strong as to subject me to, uh, you know, any risk at all. Um, so that I mean, begs the question, is it even worth it for them to open? And I yes. know that three people is not the, that's not a statistically uh, significant not, group. Is that what you're telling yeah, me? You got to get up to at least four. We call Gary <laughs> call Gary. Um, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't go because I don't want to be a part of like the 30,000 blogs that are going to be posted to YouTube that night when all the bloggers yeah. and vloggers yeah. rampage in the park. But actually this could maybe if it does spread and with tragic consequences, <laughs> YouTube could become a much better place. So, so to that point though, the, the, is it even worth it? Uh, question. Yes. I think there's a couple of things that you need to look at, though. The guest satisfaction, Ben, you hit on this early on. Is this even a Disney vacation? Like what you think of in your mind as a Disney vacation that doesn't include wearing uh, face masks, doesn't include concerning yourself over whether or not you're going to get sick and have the vacation ruined, uh, all of those other aspects. It might roll out, though, to the how they open the parks. Now, the thing I think that worries me the most is, you know, say I'm say I'm paying for a vacation. I'm flying in from Texas. Like what we're doing this summer, it's my whole family. There's uh, 14 of us coming yep. out there, so it's a substantial trip uh, and a substantial cost. But what if the park's limited to 25 percent capacity, and I got to deal with the locals who are flocking there because they have a season pass, and right. they're getting there at four in the morning, and they're going to be the ones in while I'm paying you know, a crazy price, but both parks are not available to me because the 25% capacity is already hit. That's the thing I fear about. Now, if Disney decides to roll something out, which I think is a possibility, what if it is limited to resort? You have to have a resort reservation. You have to be a resort yeah. guest. That way they can actually track who's at the resort and who's going to the parks those days. Once you start getting the, the local crowd going in there and the local season pass holders who uh, can be just driving in off property and we have no idea what they've been doing, where they've been from, or where they're going afterwards uh, on a daily basis – that that is why I wouldn't want to necessarily pay the price. It's not because I don't want to go to the parks. It's because of what is the hassle going to be to get in the parks, and even like the the face mask stuff and the safety guidelines. I'm okay with all that. It's the how is my the the how is the bang on my buck going to be impacted? That's the, something that we've discussed before uh, with our trips and the 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 value proposition of how you spend your day in the parks now you know limit that down to a quarter of the uh capacity and not all the rides are running and uh the rides that are running are running at a quarter of the capacity themselves 
that's the stuff that I'm worried about. So I, I do, I do wonder how they roll this out compared, you know, when they're taking, starting to take reservations again, they're telling people to book resort trips. How do they play that out with the local season pass holder guests that they've also got to, you know, satisfy at some point as well. You hit on a lot of things there. I did. I'm going to sit back and drink. You guys okay, talk. Okay. You relax. We'll try to, we'll try to unwind it. There are, there've been a bunch of different suggestions being thrown out there, uh, by, well, Ben just hinted on some of them and I've heard, uh, Len and Jim talk about it on their show. If they limited the parks to just people staying on site, theoretically, they could also limit transportation to Disney-owned and operated transportation, meaning that if you wanted to get to a park, you have to take Disney transportation to do so, and that can help with sanitation. You can help with uh, – you don't necessarily have to stage people at the entrance of a park for any health check. You can do that at the resorts or even say that uh, Universal put out a, a survey that asked if people would be willing to take a coronavirus test before entering the park, like a rapid coronavirus test, should one exist. Um, those are the types of things that could logistically be a little bit easier if you limit attendance to people that are staying on site. Um, but to that point, uh, that presents all sorts of other issues. Uh, HIPAA violations is one of them, so you'd have to waive that. Uh, these are all just potential logistical nightmares that could make this not worth it. But I want to throw some numbers at people because that's really the part that people really like in a podcast when people talk uh, dollars. <laughs> In 2018, on an average day, uh, the four Disney parks had 160,000 people in them. Knowing that not everyone is paying you know, for a one-day, one-park ticket, but a significant number of those people are uh, buying food, staying at a Disney-owned hotel, let's assume just $200 per person per day at that cost. You're talking $32 million a day in what they would have coming in at the absolute minimum now. That doesn't mean that that's $32,000 or $32 million net each day, but they are clearly right. losing money by, uh, by not having the parks open. Um, you certainly have operational costs with all this. Uh, there are other benefits that can be factored in that, yes, you can still, uh, you, you can still benefit from the parks not o- operating, but still be a entity that you own. But beyond that, they are, they are losing money. I think it is entirely realistic that they are opening the parks to lose less money, not necessarily to turn a profit. Well, I think yeah. that that is what they may be trying to do here. I want to circle back to a question you asked about five minutes ago, which is should they open the parks? Mm-hmm. And uh, the answer and my answer to that is absolutely 100% yes. And okay. the reason largely, I think, is because there's a group of people who don't want to be pioneers. They don't want to be the first people to go back to the park. Right. Um, whether it's logical or not, whether it's founded in any medical science or not, what is going to happen is the 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 news cycle that comes out once the parks reopen is going to inform the public at large as to whether or not they go. So if the park has a few good weeks where there's not catastrophic news stories coming out about people dropping dead, um, then an increasing number of people will become confident enough to go. So right. they have to start that process. They have to try it. I, they have to try it. Um, and there is some risk there because I think that if they do open up and that, and that news cycle is catastrophic, 
There's um, a lot of risk, not just some. There's beyond yeah. like just normal brand damage from guest satisfaction standpoint. If people start dying, then that, well, that brand damage is going to be very significant. The guest satisfaction part is a very interesting topic in my mind because, and you asked Ben a question, is if you have to go and capacity is reduced and some attractions are shut down and maybe you have to stay on property, is that a Disney vacation, I think was your question. Yeah. Well, but that's an interesting question in the context of the world that we have today because no, that's not what a Disney vacation has historically been. But there are people in this country who are getting arrested if they leave their house. That's not mm-hmm. historically what life has been. So, Fair. you know, what we constitute as being an escape from the everyday has to change by virtue of the fact that what the everyday is has changed dramatically. You've got people that are, you know, a little more, uh, you know, uh, acquiescing to the, to the government than I am. You know, I go out when I want to. I, I do what I want. I don't really think that most of these orders are valid, so I ignore them. Um, but there's certainly people that think that if they leave their house, they're going straight to prison and that's fine for them. Getting out at all is a vacation. It's an escape mm-hmm. from what they're used to. So, um, you know, again, it comes down to the unknown. Uh, it, it's just, it's going to be so fascinating, I think, to watch and see how this all goes down. I don't know how you guys, uh, feel when you're on vacation at Disney world. For me, I rarely want to look at the news, even, even Disney news, like, uh, I catch up on all that stuff the week the week after because I just I, I don't want to think about it. I'm on vacation. I'm enjoying my time, and this is you said it escapism. That's not going to be possible at, at least for the next six to twelve months. There, if what you're trying to escape is uh, you know the pandemic or the you know the stress of it, this isn't going to help because it's going to be so. Everything that they do there is going to be. It's going to be the coronavirus park. It's going to be everything they do is going to be that they're, you know, taking steps to prevent you from getting it, which is going to be a constant reminder of it. It would be like if you're in line for an attraction and the music playing was, don't worry about your job. You're not going to get fired. The mortgage is going to pay Mm -hmm. for itself. Like it would make no sense. It's a reminder of the things that people are stressed out. Well, now the transformation is that the thing that a lot of people are stressed about is going to be front and foremost there. In a weird way, I kind of want to be reminded about it, though, while I'm riding Pirates of the Caribbean instead of being reminded about it while I'm sitting on my couch every day watching (laughs) the news. There's definitely a positive about that. At least you're not going to get scurvy. (laughs) Remind me about it while I remove my mask to eat my Dole Whip. It's okay. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Ben, you asked a question earlier on about whether or not you can charge full price. Uh, I don't see Disney changing their pricing structure. Uh, with one possible exception, again, something suggested on Jim and Len's show by a listener about having the park open in the morning, having a couple hours to sanitize the park, and then having it open uh, in the evening as well, and perhaps having a full-day admission into half-price admissions or half-day admissions as yeah. a possibility. Um, but in general, let's assume that there is a return to normal operations at some point in the future – and we're looking at like post-2008 market collapse type demand for the parks where, yes, there's a demand, but it's significantly reduced. Um, what they did then was a lot of uh, buy one, get one, or in the case of uh, hotel rooms, I think it was buy four, get three nights free, and that's paired with park tickets. That is what I expect them to do to, uh, to pad attendance when they can. Uh, that they'll offer discounts, which is effectively the same thing as not charging full price, but it doesn't cheapen the value of the ticket in their mind's eye. That's kind yeah. of how they do it. It's an optics thing. It, um, that matters too for shareholders. I mean, you got to remember Disney is serving a lot of masters, and yeah. right. they don't want to 
I mean, exactly as you said, they don't want to project a reduction in the value of their offerings. And I get that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's okay. I don't mind that they wouldn't, and I don't, I don't expect them to change their pricing on there, don't but I kind, of, I kind of go back <laughs> true. Hey, raise your price. Uh, I kind of go back though, to my <laughs> trip that got canceled a few weeks ago, though, the two months leading up to it, the daily stress that I was under about trying to figure out how to get a boarding group for rise of the resistance, <laughs> you know, at least if I, if, if, if I got there and did everything I was supposed to and didn't get a rise of the resistance boarding group, at least I had the rest of the park to go to the rest of the day. Right. But if there's a limited capacity for just allowing guests in, you know, what if you don't get to those steps and by 9am you're not going, but yet you've invested in this vacation. That's, that's kind of the, I'm not expecting them to drop prices, but yet I do kind of expect them to cater to the people that are paying to go, if they do decide to make those investments and, and, and go on their trips, there's got to be some kind of way to make sure those people are taken care of. Again, I I don't want to you know completely crap on the locals and the bloggers and things like that, but you know a majority feel, of those fat, feel free. Go ahead. <laughs> a, a majority of those boarding groups, Rise of the Resistance, seem to go to the same people every single day who have been on it over and over and over again right. at the expense of the people who are paying a much higher dollar figure to be there for five days and not get to ride it once during that time period. Does that then turn into, well, you paid for five days and you're only going to get to go to the Magic Kingdom twice because you didn't you didn't get in. You, it was at capacity by six in the morning because you didn't uh, get to the parking lot at four in the morning to start lining up at that time. I don't know. That's, that's where uh, once they start limiting capacity, but they're trying to encourage people to come and spend money and, and vacation there, they've got to figure out that balance to uh, make sure those people get their dollars worth. That goes to the how many parks do you open at a time? Mm-hmm. And in theory, let's say they start with opening two parks, Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom. That if they see that the demand is there and they can appropriately staff them, then you expand the other, you expand to Hollywood Studios and Epcot uh, and kind of use them as a pressure release valve. I also think that uh, you're probably going to be looking at the, the intervals that we're seeing for like phases of anything in any state is a two-week window where you're looking at a two-week decline in uh, reported cases. You're looking at things like that. Uh, uh, unless that you live here in Texas and you don't give a crap about nothing. Fair, so fair enough. But uh, what people that are looking at some level of, I love Texas. of data <laughs> uh, are, are looking at uh, two-week windows, it seems like. So uh, it's entirely possible that, yes, you might open at 25% capacity and then you gradually increase as, uh, as time passes. Uh, to put that in perspective, though, um, the parks generally operate between 40 to 70% of capacity of like what their actual we're going to close the park to guess number is. So uh, Epcot, I believe, has the highest number. And I, I want to say it's 100,000, but don't quote me on that. I believe Magic Kingdom is around 90. And can I, you're can ap- I throw some numbers at you? Sure. So based on the IAPA uh, capacity numbers, I, I did the math. Now, I, I made a couple of assumptions here, and I'll share those with, with you what those are because they may be way off. Maybe you can have some insight on this. Okay. But one acre uh, encompasses 43,560 square feet. So if you take sure. Magic Kingdom, which has an area of 100 acres, that's 4,356,000 square feet. Now, I don't know what percentage of Magic Kingdom... Let me do King- that in my head. Hold on. <laughs> check your math. Yep. All right. Let's that, that should check. <laughs> I, I don't know what percentage of Magic Kingdom is actually on stage area, but I did two calculations, one at 25% and one at 50%. Yep. Uh, and if you take 25% of that area, it's about 1.1 million square feet. 
So if you use the 36 square foot rule that IAPA recommends, which I think is going to be the industry standard based on the, you know, six foot separation deal, I think you actually run into Kevin Bacon if you violate that, but I could be wrong. Um, if 25% of Magic Kingdom is on stage accessible, then that would give a capacity under this rule of about 30,250 people. And if it's 50%, that gives a capacity of about 60,500 people. So anywhere between there would be between those numbers. I have no idea if those 25 and 50% numbers are close, but in either instance, you're looking at a substantial max capacity reduction from, from what's there today. Although I don't know what the actual, you know, at any given moment in time, what the average capacity actually is. So it might not be an effective reduction at all. Average guests in Magic Kingdom in 2018 uh, was 57,000. At any given so, time? At any given time. So uh, attendance is 20,000, 20,859,000. This is according to TIA. So it's all right. It's the only numbers we have that are publicly right. available. So assuming plus or minus 55 to 60,000 is your average Magic Kingdom day. So in theory, these numbers might not actually have any impact whatsoever on the you know wall plate capacity of, of the park. I think they're going to look at it perhaps even they're, – they're going to have to look at it as to right, what do we have for other operations where if we, we know that we can run Pirates of the Caribbean at 50% capacity, but to get people to queue for that, we need to stage some people in um, Enchanted Tiki Room and right. set up queue space there. What uh, do you think about that? Because my source uh, commented on that, and I'm curious to see if your thoughts align with theirs. I don't really object to it, um, but yeah, I think not. that the I, I think you're more likely to see more v- virtual queuing than queuing elsewhere. I think that makes more sense. But the flip side, the counter argument to that is that virtual queuing potentially puts more people on the walkways. Well, that's what so, I was going to say. Is are you are you fixing a problem there, or are you just relocating a problem? Right. So the the thing with the with the walkways is that. In theory, there are more spaces to hide, to separate yeah. yourself from people. Um, and one of the proposals that I had had for a fast pass change was everybody gets two rolling fast passes at any one time, and you book one, uh, you go on the ride, you book another one, you go on the ride, but you can have you can hold two simultaneously. I could see them doing something very similar to what I wanted with a virtual queuing system, and you basically have people have see what that does for a guest satisfaction standpoint and basically any attraction that they would anticipate more than a 15 minute wait for shifted to fast pass plus or shifted to the virtual queuing system. And the most important component of this is you have to make these reservations day of, you can't do this in yep. advance. Um, is, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Is this a time period though, where, you know, it, this happened back when Diagon Alley uh, first opened the green guts and, you know, Disney's never done it because of how important show is for them. But you, there are backstage areas that you could you could yeah. take advantage of during these situations. Well, there is some space over in Adventureland, and and there is some, there's a lot of space over in uh, Tomorrowland uh, right. that they could build some temporary queues that would give you some an outdoor area to do it in uh, with more space. You, you know, it, it, Magic Kingdom might not be the best option, but. My wife isn't a fan of doing it in outdoor areas. 
Wow. Uh, <laughs> Epcot, there is areas to do it. Hollywood Studios actually is perfect because the backstage areas look like sound stages to begin with, <laughs> which that park is themed after anyway. You're, you're not losing any of the magic by housing some of that stuff in areas that are not being utilized whatsoever right now. And that would keep walkways and, and some of those spots uh, a little bit clearer that we are worried about, you know, congesting at the moment. Yeah. If there was basically a, you know, series of, uh, of gymnasiums where you could stage people um, <laughs> and have it where they're they're spread out. I think that would be the ideal scenario for Disney where you can actually have them waiting in a physical line and kind of they're not they're not moving anywhere until they're told that they can move forward. That sort of thing is really the safest approach. Does that sound fun to you? No, it, it absolutely doesn't <laughs> sound fun. <laughs> but the, the flip side to this is... If you can get it to a point where every guest that enters the park is corona free, is that a better alternative than worrying about Disney.com. <laughs> exactly. Corona was a, that was a plug for Josh. Uh, two N's think, in Corona for the way that he spells it. God, do you think um, there's any chance I can sell that to them? <laughs> could, could this be my gravy train? So I, I want to go back to something that uh, Universal put in a survey, which was uh, taking a test before entering the park and getting a, a response in 15 minutes. And Jim and Len talked about this on their show and about how to logistically do it. And they were talking about various stages of the parking uh, floor. Never going to happen. Waste of, waste of discussion time. Uh, Nonsense. So here's my proposal to it. You stay in the car. You get the test from the car, like your various drive-through tests. And not until you're clear are you allowed out of the car. That's you know, the only do, way I think you, you know how they do a Corona test, right? They basically stick a very long Q-tip just shy yeah, of your brain. Pretty much. Uh, yes. I am not. I barely want to roll down my window to hang my fucking AP to the parking gate attendant. I'm not letting him <laughs> stick a broomstick up my goddamn nose. And that goes so, that goes to the all right. What are you willing to accept for? Uh, I, I know that Len has some medical background. I think he's a computer nerd that works in the medical industry, <laughs> but mm-hmm. his incomprehensible rambling mess of a diatribe about gloves was all I need to know that I have no interest in hearing anything that he has to say about medical <laughs> procedures. I don't know if you heard that on his last show, but it was it, insane. It was, uh, it was a lot of dancing. It was, um, yeah. To, it was in order to prove that he didn't say something stupid on the previous episode. He spent five minutes saying stupid things on the latest episode. Um, yeah. So, so to that point, Let's say hypothetically that there is a less invasive, less penetrating uh, coronavirus test. Like an anal-based one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they stick a road cone up your ass and they test it. You got to wait five minutes and then and then you can go into the park. Is is that a is that in this hypothetical world? Is that a better solution? Getting everybody cleared ahead of time. No. Okay. Yep. No. End of discussion. Okay. I, I just I don't have anything more to say about it. It's, it's to me. It just it's uh, it's absurd to the point that I I don't have anything more to to contribute about it. Yeah, and unless they it, come up with a, you know, it, it, okay. So look, all right, we're a blue sky podcast. So in fairness yep. to our to our theme, Imagineers get their shit together. <laughs> if, yeah, if they can, if they are, if the medical community is able to come up with a coronavirus test that is as quick and uninvasive as taking your temperature with like an ear-based thermometer, yep. then 
then yes, that's a viable solution. But I think literally anything short of that is an absolute non-starter. Hey, Josh, come here. I got to stick my finger (laughs) up your butt. I'm not falling for that again. This will be the fourth time. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have coronavirus, but you had a little bump down here. You want to get checked? Get in the van. (laughs) The other question is, are Disney parks so riddled with disease that like those other diseases will just kill the coronavirus. Like, <laughs> is that a possibility? Like the wall in Winnie the Pooh, I think that thing needs to be tested. There is probably the cure. There's probably something in there. It's that funny. Can at least help. It's funny that you mention that because I, one of my notes is a list of things that I suspect will be gone from the parks. And yeah. Winnie the Pooh wall was one of those. It was like the number one item on the list. So yeah, I lick that every trip and I'm pretty sure I'm immune to all communicable diseases. You're good. You're going to live forever. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the finger scanners are getting switched with the uh, with the tongue depressor, right? Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about the finger scanners? Why do we still have that? Like, yeah. I do. It's so dumb. What What is wrong with even facial recognition, which is what they do at Disneyland? It's not even like true facial recognition. It's they take it, your picture and the cast member looks at it. It yeah. was easier for me to return into the country from my overseas cruise than it is for me to enter a Disney park with my finger and that yeah. thing not lighting up correctly. Universal so, is even worse, by the way, because uh, that thing, one doesn't actually work. You know, one thing that we've talked about in here is the use of technology for technology's sake. And the context that we've always used it in is developing attractions. But yeah. I definitely think that a lot of them, my, my Disney Plus uh, stuff and the finger scanner in particular is a great example of that. It's like, hey, here's a technology we can use. Does it fix a problem that we have? No. Does it make anything better? No. Does it improve guest experience? No. But why do we want to use it? Well, it's modern. Um, that stupidity predated my Magic Plus. Uh, they did like did the it? bone scans and they just had like things, bone anything scans. other. Oh yeah. They, it was like you squeeze two fingers against a, um, like a pressure plate and it would measure like something other than your fingerprint. And that was attached to your ticket instead. Bone uh, scans. <laughs> yeah. That's what, they, that's what they said it was. Are you um, kidding me? <laughs> Sorry, no, sir, you don't have the, your bones are not authorized to go in here. <laughs> I have a rare condition. <laughs> but the the fact that like they do two different systems on each I'll give coast. You a bone scan. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a coronavirus test. Hey Josh, come here for your bone scan. Bonescan.com. <laughs> at, at Disneyland, they uh, say you get a five day ticket. They'll take your picture on the first day, and they'll just pull up whenever you're scanned in on subsequent days. And I, I don't see why we're not doing that. Uh, that's the easiest way. Uh, to to verify this we have the technology to have a video monitor at every one of these every one of these booths and it would make the entry process quicker let alone the uh, sanitation component you'll, i think you'll probably see it now um yeah y- you know there's so to hit this iapa document again i i, I bashed on a little bit and, and to be fair i'm not really intending to beat up on iapa i think they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing it's yeah. just that you know it's hard to sound profound when there isn't really anything profound to say, you know, all you can really do is, uh, you know, barf out common sense things, but there were a few things in here that I thought are at least worthy of mention. And obviously one of them that you would expect again, is common sense is just reducing. First of all, you have certain touch high touch areas that are always going to be high touch areas and you can't fix that. Right. So sanitation of those cleaning of those is the only thing you can do. But there are other high-touch areas that you can reduce. And that's a, I think if there's any salient point in this document that I hope Disney latches onto, because even though they didn't contribute to it, hopefully they'll read it, um, <laughs> there is definitely opportunities to reduce the number of high-touch points that exist in the entire 
theme park experience. And one thing I think this document did do a good job of is it didn't limit itself to just looking at an individual attraction. It sort of timelined itself and it goes all the way to the beginning of the planning of a trip. So how tickets are purchased. Can you encourage online ticket purchases as opposed to having people queuing up and buying them from uh, you know, a ticket, a ticket agent in a booth? Because that eliminates a whole group of people. It eliminates mm-hmm. cast member to, to uh, guest contact. So certainly that makes sense. The next logical step after acquisition of the ticket for anyone who's ever gone to a park is then you queue up in order to actually enter the park, right? So right. there's a clear uh, point at the park here with this fingerprint identification that can be eliminated. It can be eliminated right now. Maybe you just say, you know what? We're going to take the risk of loss of some people sneaking into the park with an invalid ticket or someone else's ticket because the cost of that pales in comparison to having 100% of guests touch this thing, right? It seems to me that right now in 2020, in light of all of this, when you do the risk-reward analysis between those two things, it's very clear. You throw the green tarp over that thing, and you go with an alternate admission method that's contactless. To that me, that goes is, against that's Disney's a approach of bending over to pick up pennies while dollars fly over their head, though. You got to factor that. <laughs> Agreed. And you know, <laughs> Disney's not certainly not the only company that's that's, that's, that's printed on that. uh, all CEOs' uh, letterhead. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's something I think will definitely happen. Yeah, I think you got to look at smart things like that, that really we've been, they haven't necessarily been the main rallying cry of this podcast, but they've been things that we've certainly critiqued in the past, just stupid things that they're doing. Somebody that, was talking about the, radio. So, yeah, so, some of the, what benefits, what what positives can come out of this, you know, talking about, nobody likes going to the ticket booth and mm-hmm. waiting in those lines and it, yep. it's just a waste of time. So, you know, yeah, do it all, do it all on the uh an app type situation. Another one is, you know, anybody who's done mobile ordering before at a quick service in the pickup knows that is a much more efficient use of your time and better, better deal. And you're doing the same thing. You're, you're just ordering it ahead of time and picking it up as opposed to waiting in those lines crowded next to those people getting jammed between the cashier and the, and the countertop where you're stuck next to people again, you know, making that as, as a, opposed to just one line when you go to a quick service, making that the standard uh, ahead of time, it's the smart thing to do anyway. And it's the, it's the better thing is it makes for a better experience uh, overall. So what other efficiencies can they take advantage of and, and make, standard uh in the parks as opposed to uh just a small group using those things on a on a daily basis i think that's a definite possible upside i think a lot of the things that we've made fun of disney doing particularly when they make a mistake and then they they sort of double down on it Mm -hmm. i think it's largely because individuals are you know especially rich successful people that run companies like this it's just a naturally flowing consequence of that that you you have some hubris and ego and saving face matters to them Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes something very negative like this whole pandemic can be an opportunity to ch- reverse course or change course in a way that, that doesn't result in embarrassment. It's a way for them to, you know, essentially acknowledge that what they're doing isn't working, but they can do it in a way that doesn't acknowledge that they ever made a mistake in the first place. So if there's ever a time when they could actually make some significant changes, um, you know, without fear of reprisal, this is probably it. There is a two-way street on that, though. This is also a chance for large corporations like this to make the cutbacks that they've been yeah. wanting to do that would have been negative publicity from the get-go. They can hide that also underneath the uh, disguise of we're doing it because of the pandemic. So, yes, yep. there are positives that can come out of it, but also 
you know, maybe they were looking to get rid of a certain number of staff to begin with. And hey, the furloughs helped them do that without the negative publicity that usually comes around whenever they go through massive layoffs. Uh, you're not going to have that this time. And, you know, so part of it does make me wonder what kind of efficiencies and, and positives we can see in the parks. But, you know, there are going to be some negatives that they were probably looking to do to begin with that are going to become pretty permanent, you know, ways that we experience uh, the parks. Yep. I want to see them roll out remote or remote ordering, uh, mobile ordering in more places, but I don't want to see more people using it. I want to, I want to have access to it myself. So but if, ev- if, if every counter is a mobile order, then that helps you right now. You are limited to the one area. Yeah. It, you know, if the entire Pecos bill, if every line at Pecos bills was people going in there and picking up their mobile orders, then you're going to move through, through there very fast as opposed to the, the one on the very far right. That's the only place yeah. you can go. I would love mobile to see that happen. Now. If we can make the automated, uh, solution the the norm and the the face to face ordering old style you know the exception that would be a huge win to me yeah it, no doubt if, if they I do like it, it as an based- option but but how how important is that cast member interaction I'm not trying to like play devil's advocate it's here. not it's it, not well, at you, all you, you you say it is you, you say it isn't rather and there are components of guest satisfaction that involve people. There are other components of guest satisfaction that so just give me my damn food. Yes. Uh, so it, it's, it's pick your poison. But my 72-year-old father is not going to want to use his phone because, well, first off, it's, he's probably going to explode before the phone does. Your 72-year-old father doesn't want to deal with some snot-nosed, you know, whippersnapper <laughs> either. You should be ordering for your 72-year-old father if you're a good son. We have uh, okay. <laughs> times for that purpose. But, you know, uh, to be honest with you, though, those those quick service places have gotten so busy and so overrun, especially during busy times of the day, that I can't tell you the last time I had a actual good face-to-face experience no, with right. that cast member at that at that kiosk. And it's not their fault by any means. They're, they are trained to get people through that line as fast as possible. Yeah. So the last thing on their mind is sitting there to have a conversation with you look 25 25 years ago is different a food service kiosk cast member is a lot like a referee uh they're supposed (laughs) to go unnoticed so (laughs) see what i did there yeah i like it did i just seinfeld did that bitch (laughs) (laughs) i mean to your point though i i was using mobile ordering my last few trips wherever i could and like as simple as i don't want to go to the snack stand to get a bottle of water i'll order it from mobile ordering and pick it up at the uh at the restaurant if uh if that's easier we don't actually have to talk to anybody that's just my laziness but the the approach to all of this uh and i want to go back to that iapa uh, document there were there was a line in there about restricting guests uh not necessarily based on where they're staying but potentially based by age uh by body size all of that i found uh remarkably interesting and we've seen it on an individual attraction standpoint uh where on certain attractions, just larger guests wouldn't fit into it. Um, or there's just warning saying that, hey, you know, maybe the grandmother probably shouldn't go on um, Dueling Dragons or something like that. But I wonder if we would ever see a point where they say nobody over the age of 65 is allowed in the parks for the short term. Like, do you think they could get away with doing something like that? Somebody just opened a Word document at the NAACP. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is just like discrimination central. Right. I meant AARP, but also in all of them. Would it be that or nobody over 65 can enter the park without signing a waiver? Maybe. Well, this is such – it's like I want to talk about this, but I also don't want to think about it. 
the, the, the depths of the insanity that could stem from this are unlimited yeah. in my mind. Yeah. I mean, there's a general concept in the law of, of, of assumption of risk. And right. what that entails generally is that if a person who, if a reasonable person engages in an activity where they either knew or should have been aware of the risks that were involved, and then they're harmed as a result of those risks, they are, they essentially don't have a viable claim against, you know, whoever's operating that facility by virtue of the fact that they proceeded in face of, you know, the risk that they knew about. Yep. So the question is, you know, with something like this is, you know, is there a latent harm there? Is there something that, it, that, that, that could hurt them that a reasonable person wouldn't be aware of? And I don't think that there is. So I, I suspect that, you know, if you put up a couple of warning signs and you yeah, say, exactly. look, you're, you're about yeah. to, you know, yeah. encounter a large group of people like no shit, Sherlock. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it, it, this coffee's hot. Like you got to put that warning on there now. Right. So I, I you no know, shit, Sherlock legal, uh, <laughs> requisite legal message might be might have but you know you, your point actually brings up a good one which is that um regardless of what disney does there are going to be predatory attorneys out there who bring yeah. claims yeah regardless you know even if disney did absolutely nothing wrong so uh what i would certainly encourage our listeners to do is to be sure that you don't equate the filing of a lawsuit with actual uh you know malfeasance or uh you know any sort of bad action on the part of disney because those don't really correlate there's going right. to be if you're a plaintiff's attorney and you lack any, if you if you lack substantial, you know, ethical uh, and moral compasses, you're going to seek out a couple of things. Anyone who's willing to be a plaintiff, and particularly plaintiffs who have in their sights defendants who have deep pockets. So that makes Disney, uh, you know, sort of a very juicy and delicious target. So that that's going to happen. I don't think that, you know. The Disney experience will cease to exist as, if we know it. If you have to sign a you know a ten page uh, waiver before you ride on every attraction, I think that the waiver is that you're walking into a, a theme park that's designed to you know excite and thrill you. And, and, and what is Six Flags going to do? You know, Disney is uh, you know an extraordinarily. I mean, I almost got shot in the parking lot of a Six Flags. I mean, what waiver do you do for that? I mean, that place is terrifying. Um, the the interesting thing is, though, like compare that to like the cruise line industry, though, and the the paperwork that you sign to get on that boat. You know, does does that kind of stuff translate to a Disney vacation? Just to you know, CYA cover cover their ass a little bit. Uh, and, on, and honestly, I don't think twice when I signed that paperwork to get on one of those boats, and I wouldn't think twice to to do that to go to a Disney park. But We're I'm not also supposed to say that when Josh is on. Josh, is I know, I know. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> hey, Judge Posner in Chicago said that he actually ruled on a case where the where there was language in the terms of service on a piece of software, and his part of his ruling was that no one reads that. He goes, "I've never even read that. No one reads that stuff." And he he ruled <laughs> against the defendant in the case. So, uh, you know, Ben's points uh, valid. The idea of getting into the park itself is is all sorts of confusing as to how that would even happen. They're going to look to Shanghai to see how those operations work, but uh, China is a different country than the United States, and they can uh, they can get away with more than we can get away with in this in this country. But wait, you mean China's not part of Earth? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, exactly. Or or the world, as you said uh, last episode. The uh, the idea of temperature checks, uh, I think a lot of people look at that as less invasive than a Q-tip up your ass. I have a couple uh, questions about that. So, yeah, go ahead. I, can you do that outside? A temperature so, check? 
like here's I, how little I know about mammals. I, I I know that you know we have like a you know a constant body temperature and all that. But I would imagine if you if you tech if you check my skin temperature, you know mm-hmm. when I'm when I'm standing 100 degrees sun, is that not going to read hotter? I mean, I've never actually exactly. tried it. So that that's seem, what, doesn't seem like it would work well to yeah. me. And, and one thing going back to that Shanghai video, uh, it does show that process of what you would need to get into the park, which included a government ID. Uh, it also included a pre-reservation to to attend that day. It also uh, included the QR codes that they're requiring people to have over there that showed the clearance of you not having uh, the virus. But the the other thing that it showed was you do go through a temperature scan uh, tent before entering the park. And the way they do it, it's not an individual uh, put a thermometer up to your head scan. They take the temperature of the group and then divide by the number of members. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) The the video that it showed was from the security person's point of view and the monitor that they look at. And uh, it's one of those cameras that is scanning people as they walk by with real time. Their temperature appears above their head. You don't even stop. You walk through Mm -hmm. the tent. The the camera catches you. uh, And it showed a group of like 15 people walking through at one time. And there were 15 different numbers that were above the person people. Uh, And then they exit the tent without even stopping. I guess if, if there's somebody that's above temperature, it'll flag that person and a security person will pull them to the side. Uh, But you go through that first before you then go through your regular Disney security check uh, where they go through your bags and everything. And then after that, you meet with a Disney cast member that will check your ID to make sure your ID, your government state issued uh, ID matches the reservation on your name. And as yeah, (laughs) it has to be the exact name uh, on both forms. And that's when they'll also check your QR code to make sure that you are cleared to enter the park uh, on a, uh, by the health uh, situation of the day. (laughs) I'm not sure that the ID is necessary, although Disney asked for it when you get a magnet at the, uh, well, what does that, what does my ID have to do with whether or not I have a virus? What if I don't have a D? Does that mean I can't get sick? The ID is to make sure that you are the person that reserved the spot that day and also matches with the QR code that's on your on your phone. I guess so, that kind of makes sense, but it doesn't. But how really does that tie it. back to preventing infection? I if no the Q, is, does a QR code clear you of the virus? Is that effectively yes. like okay? Yeah, so you so. you have a, it's like green, yellow, red, and whatever, and so you have to have the green clearance code to be able to enter the park that day. And so your name and all your all your information is attached to that code. Your state issued ID matches yep. that QR code, and then that also has to match. Uh, it, it it showed it pretty pretty clear that the all the names have to match up that nothing can be you know kind of scammed to, to kind of skirt the system to get in i don't understand how any of that correlates to the stated objective i don't know i'm not chinese and i don't run <laughs> shanghai disneyland josh quit yelling at me um one of the thing one of the suggestions uh, let's let's say that at that at some point disney has to do temperature checks at, at the outset for a period of time that they have to do temperature checks they feel that that's part of the process at the beginning now in order to do this you've got to have people queuing up you've got to have people queuing up again for security um you need a certain amount of space to do this one of the suggestions that uh, guy salga put out there was to do it at the bus depot at the magic kingdom which would extend kind of down that walkway that goes to the contemporary i don't think that's the way to do it i think mm-hmm. the way to do it is to uh use the ttc parking lot yeah you've got a much bigger area there and you can effectively use the various parking spaces as holding areas for each group that you you queue them up in a various line. Uh, What's the average parking spot with eight feet, maybe Um, 
but it's wide enough that you can basically stage people there. That would be my recommendation should they feel obligated to do a temperature check. Um, I also think that it is probably in everybody's best interest to do that concurrently with some level of security check. Uh, I think that uh, having people just you're trying to improve guest satisfaction standpoint here. If you can do them both at the same time, that would be ideal. Um, But uh, I I would be in support of doing these types of things in the parking lot themselves, Uh, setting up an area of the parking lot. You're going to be using reduced capacity, so you don't have to worry about filling the parking lot with cars. Um, Use that space. It's available to you. Well, even if you're going to reduce capacity, even at that point, you could do it probably all within the footprint of the TTC area uh, yeah, and not yeah. even have to get into the parking lot and use some of that new covered area that they have uh, th- that, that's been online not too long uh, now. Use use some of that. You don't probably reduce capacity. You don't need as many security checkpoints as they have set up right now. So you could reduce that capacity by half and, and use that reduced area for your temperature scan. So do your temperature scan right into your security check and then getting into, uh, you know, get your monorail or whatever you need to get over across the, uh, to the park. Do you think there's any efficacy at all to doing this? I mean, is, is this, this goes back to the theater area. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's just, I'm just trying to picture this in my mind with my eyes closed as you guys describe this. And I'm going to I'm imagining that I'm in this experience and I'm, I'm having a terrible time. I'm not like, we've this. already kind of like accepted that these are things that are going to happen and whether or not there's any actual efficacy is yeah. irrelevant at this point. I, I think Disney might lose me over this. I, you know, I'm, no. I, I, I don't know. I can't see myself paying to experience this. I can't even see myself willingly doing it for free. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just, I'm not afraid of catching the virus, but I just can't see myself going to the parks while this shit is going on. I, I think that I'm, I'm out until they can, until this either passes or the world comes back to its senses. Hey, Tim, do you think we can replace Josh with Gary? With Gary? <laughs> That's uh, a possibility. Oh, I'm not okay. leaving um, the show. I'm still going to oh. spit my venom. <laughs> I did, uh, and this is just family discussion, Ben. You mentioned uh, going on a cruise. Uh, our family was planning on a uh, cruise this summer. We weren't going to go on it because of uh, our daughter. Uh, I don't even know that many uh, five-month-olds are allowed on cruises, but um, – so we weren't, we weren't going to do it regardless, but the thought was that it would be delayed a year. And my point to the family is we're not getting on a cruise ship until there's a vaccine. It just doesn't make sense to me that those are kind of the, the biggest breeding grounds for uh, whatever awful disease is going on in the world or not even just, you know, a, a pandemic like this. They're just breeding grounds for norovirus, for whatever. Yeah. That it just didn't make sense to us. But I think um, – you're going to hear a lot of people that have the same mindset as Josh, that it's it's not worth the trouble, not even necessarily the risk, but the trouble uh, with the perceived risk to even go to the parks until uh, these things are eased off a little bit. And Disney is going to potentially face that. And it might be a self-solving problem where uh, Ben was concerned about not being able to get into the parks unless he gets there at 6 a.m. with reduced capacity. But it might I don't be think a problem that's going to be the problem. Yep. I, th- I, think that's, I think that's more likely. Um, well, and, why don't we go ahead? I was gonna say, I, you know, yes, I don't think we're planning our July trip just because it's going to be so close to the park opening and, you know, reopen and procedures and all that stuff. I just not, don't, don't know how anything's going to run, but yeah. Also, already, it's July I, in Florida. Well, <laughs> it's also, yeah, bullet dodge there. It's also July in Texas. So it's not, That's it's true. not like I, uh, you know, drier in Texas. <laughs> That's true. So maybe. 
But uh, I have talked with my wife that, you know, yes, what if what if things kind of get up and running or, or, you know, settled a bit through through the summer and we have a fall break. We have an October break that's a week long that there's not going to be a vaccine by that point. But Mm -hmm. if I find things are operating pretty smooth and things are kind of returned to a bit normal and things aren't flaring up, I'm not against going in October. Uh, in fact, yeah. I probably want to go in October because Beautiful time of year. work it's has a been, in, time of year to go. yeah, it, 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 and honestly, part of my thing is July is, yeah, yeah, I work in sports, sports are targeting to ramp back up in July as well. So it's not going to be the most ideal time for me to take time off from work, but if things, if, if they can show that they're doing things in a way that resembles a pretty you know, somewhat close in this time, day and age, Disney vacation come October, November. I'm not against going uh, pre-vaccine or anything like that at this point. Uh, and honestly, you talk about cruises as well. I've been on 10 plus cruises, not been sick one time. There's been no outbreaks on those cruises. I hate it that, you know, people do get sick from time to time on there. But it's, again, the... The way with the news covers stuff today, that if a if a cruise ship has a number of people that get sick from a virus, uh, it yeah. makes for a great news story. Um, That's a fair point. So it, it, when you look at how many cruises go out every year, every week, every month, every year, the one or two that you might hear about in the news that people, you know, a few hundred people got sick on. Is that, you know, worth it compared to the thousands of itineraries that happen every year that nobody got sick on? No, that's, uh, that's an absolutely so, fair point. So I kind of look at the parks the same way as I look at the cruise ships there, that if, if they can just show that things are operating in a somewhat normal manner and they can show that they can handle uh, things properly, it's not going to keep me from going to the parks anytime soon. Remember the good old days when we were concerned about whether or not they should continue operating the Skyliner? Yeah. <laughs> So, one of our discussion Somebody points. Somebody dodged a bullet there. Imagine being <laughs> the Skyliner going, dear Lord, please send something really big to distract the world from this. So, one of the discussion points there was after the uh, incident on the Skyliner. Uh, sorry, what, what are we not allowed to call it? We, we can't call it an accident. Uh, right. An, an occurrence. After the occurrence on the Skyliner. It was an um, unscheduled union of cabins. <laughs> yes. After the unscheduled union of cabins. Um, I think one cabin was giving the other cabin a coronavirus test. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a period where they were running, but they still had additional maintenance checks to do. And our recommendation on the show was maybe don't go on them during that period of time. Like that was kind of just the play it safe approach to things. And I certainly wasn't going to go on them during that time. Not that I was down there, but the, um, you said at the outset, Josh, none of us really want to be the Guinea pig here. We don't want to be there, uh, the first day that the parks reopen. But if, you know, if they're open for a couple of weeks and there's, you know, seemingly a, uh, a new normal and flow of operations and, People are saying, hey, we're able to do everything we wanted to do before. It's just slightly different. And I had an enjoyable vacation. You get those anecdotal responses, and then maybe you consider that fall trip. Um, I think that's uh, a good approach to take to the future of this. Let other people be the guinea pig. Uh, yeah. Don't do it yourself. Well, and um, good. Uh, just a, one thing. I think I might have said the 20th for Shanghai. Uh, that's the 11th. Obviously, they're reopening. Yep. Uh, Dizzy Springs is the 20th. And a little breaking news from our uh, new best friend, Tom Corliss, uh, mm-hmm. that could <laughs> that could play into our conversation. Uh, I kind of don't mean that as a joke anymore, Tom. Tom, you know, It was fun talking to Tom. Uh, 
he does have a report up today on WD, uh, WDWNT uh, that Hong Kong Disneyland is preparing for an imminent uh, reopening with the Disney Explorers Lodge and Disney's Hollywood Hotel now accepting reservations for May 15th. Okay. So uh, Hong Kong could be coming online uh, very quickly. He also has in the headline, and that's all I'm going to read because that's all that matters in stories anymore is headlines. Exactly, yeah. uh, prepares for imminent reopening with temperature screening tests and social distancing markers in place. Okay. So little little news so we can... Uh, reflect on here which kind of goes also with your you're talking about china and the, the 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 rules that they play with might be a little looser than than other places uh so i wonder how hong kong uh might line up with what we might be looking to do here in the states and uh we also should probably talk about disney springs here pretty soon as well with the uh announcement of them opening on the 20th uh in a limited capacity i think with um with disney springs i don't know that they've really given a list yet of what's going to be open right. other than it seems like it was going to be non Disney owned and operated entities, which I, I thought that, was interesting. I saw that STK said that they're opening, which uh, from what I understand, <laughs> they have plenty of social distancing already. They, they actually didn't know <laughs> that it was there. closed. They've made money during this. It's their most profitable quarter since they opened. <laughs> Um, I think perhaps now is like the time for predictions. When yeah, do you guys think the parks open and then we can kind of get into what projects are going to get the axe as a result of this? Sure. Uh, so, so first question, go around the horn. When do you think the parks open? I would uh, say let's just mid- say Florida. Mid-August. Okay. I'm going to say July 1st. I think they open in June, but I think July 1st is probably they, they will open in June, but it's like uh, like June 30th might be the case. But they've they've kind of hinted that that June is a likely possibility. I'm but so, I also think yeah, that Josh's answer is probably a better answer. Well, when like th- that's May when they should open. Right now, right? now yeah. I think I think I'd like to actually change my answer. I think that's going to be late. I would say late June. Do we do we think that that's the right time to open, or I mean, none of us are scientists here, but uh, if if money wasn't an object and you're just kind of going for safety, then you say wait till there's a vaccine and you open a year from now. Um, there's an old joke in the airline industry that you can avoid 100 percent of crashes by never right, flying right. an airplane. Yeah. So um, I think I, it's I think, fine. I think they should open. Okay. I think this whole react. All right, here comes the politics. Sorry, I held it in for <laughs> hour 28. <laughs> The thoughts and expressions of the Sultan Osaki are those only of the Sultan Osaki and do not represent Marty Called Podcast, Tim Grassy, or Skipper Ben. Are your, fa- are your face masks made out of tinfoil, Josh? Just curious. <laughs> so he thinks it should open yesterday. Okay. So, yeah. so we'll, we'll let Josh's comments uh, uh, sit as they are, as he said, agree or disagree. I don't really care either way. Um, Utilidors. Everybody is, is entitled to their opinion on this. Uh, even me. <laughs> even, even Josh. Even lowly lawyers like Josh. Um, why don't we? Why don't we move it to what we think gets the axe uh, as a result of this? Epcot. Um, <laughs> Epcot is a big one. <laughs> Epcot got such a, a slate of uh, announcements at the D twenty three Expo. Uh, why don't we just kind of go down two story festival pavilion? Does that happen? Yes or no? No. No. Okay. Spaceship Earth update. No. Nope. 
I say uh, not in its original announced form. An update does happen. I think it gets significantly a new, reduced. A new narration. That's it. Okay. Yeah, minimum. Mary Poppins ride. No. Journey of Water. Uh, yes. How far along is that? It's not. The building is still there where it's going. So here's my hypothetical for this. The journey, no. the journey of water is going to connect like the area that is Spaceship Earth to the seas. Right. And they need to knock a building down for that. They've already knocked down the other building, which is where the festival pavilion would go. I could see them axing the journey of water and building the festival pavilion um, for that reason, that they've already done the demo. That if it's an either or proposition, not the demo is the most expensive part of it, but you also have a festival pavilion that is likely going to generate revenue, whereas this is just a walking path. So um, the play pavilion, which was announced six months prior to the 23 expo, uh, that is in Wonders of Life. Does that happen? Yes. It's going to happen. Okay. It's uh, an air-conditioned cell phone charging place. Okay. Uh, Wondrous China, the new the movie, Circle Vision show. Mm, probably if it's already in production. So that's the uh, the question. With yeah. this. That, they may use this as an excuse to just not do this one. Yeah. Because I think the metric for all of these is how far along is it. Because yeah, that's fair. It, you know, they're not going to probably inject money into starting anything that hasn't been started. There's some things that, you know, I think your answer is probably going to be the most applicable on the one you said, the spaceship Earth, not in its current form. Right. I mean, the entrance is completely, you know, wrecked. <laughs> um, I don't think they're just going to leave it like that. But what are we going to get? You know, that's uh, and this is a, a if you're an Epcot fan, this is a little divergence for those of you who are still listening after my previous diatribe. Um if you love old school Epcot and you're optimistic about the changes we were going to get, this is probably most catastrophic to us uh, yep. than to anyone because um, I, I don't really know what they're going to do. Gary's theory is they're just going to pave the whole thing and make it a fireworks viewing area. We're gonna, I have, it's a possibility. We're gonna I have long, a little. We're going to long for the pin station. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't. I, I have a little more optimism than that, primarily because I think that they were going for a minimalist aesthetic to begin with. Um, there wasn't a whole lot there that wasn't, you know, pavement landscaping and things like that. I don't see any huge capital investments it would take to actually put, to, you know, finish it in that area. So I have some hope that it'll be, you know, at least finished. And maybe it's something that ends up being developed in stages to where they make it functional in the time being and then hopefully build it out as time goes forward. To the point of how far they are in development, I think uh, Remy's Ratatouille Adventure definitely happens. Uh, Tron light, light Cycle Run definitely happens. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind definitely happens. Uh, they will all be delayed. I mean, Remy's probably should have been open by now had the I parks just, been open. It seemed like we were weeks away from Remy's. How how amazing right. would that be if they just said, nope, we're not finishing? Yeah, that would be, that would be laughable. Like, eh, $200 million, we're going to fumble it over the last 100000 Um The... Uh, attachment to the Tron light cycle run, though, is the Speedway. The assumption was that there was going to be an additional refurbishment, uh, perhaps a nah. theme update to the Speedway. I would be shocked if that happens in the next five years now. It just doesn't seem like that's where you would spend your money. It's not no. worth it. You have a viable attraction, even though it's ugly and you know pollutes. Some of the more interesting things that are smaller uh, that uh, might still happen that were announced even after the D23 Expo was the uh, DuckTales World Showcase Adventure. Um, I think that actually happens because it requires minimal overlay and can be presented as a new thing. Other big projects around the world, Tokyo has like a billion plus going into Tokyo Disney Sea. 
I don't know that the Oriental Land Company has made any declarations, positive or negative, about that investment. But I could see all that still happening. Yeah. But uh, Disney is footing the bill for all the additions in Francis Studio Park. That included uh, a bit of a Marvel area. Star Wars. Star Wars. I believe it was just Rise of the Resistance. It had alien swirling saucers for some reason. Um, I could see something like alien swirling saucers getting the axe. I don't know that anybody would be too heartbroken if their version of that attraction, you know, gets the axe and it saves mm-hmm. Disney fifty to seventy-five million. But the other big one that might be a hit to this is the Avengers e-ticket in California Adventure. I don't think they're far enough along on that where I could see that getting the axe, and that's probably going to save them, you know, three hundred million dollars. That's what they spend on an e-ticket now. Um, so for you California fans, I, I could I see bet, that happening. I bet that still comes. I just see it maybe a two year later period. I mean, it's I almost mean, it's like entirely they, possible. It's almost like they reannounce it at the next D twenty three, and and maybe give a little bit more detail on it. But I don't see any like you know massive groundbreaking or anything going on there. One thing it you know it's a much smaller project, but it's something that they've invested some money in. And I don't know if they've gotten too much more outside of exterior walls going up, but you know, what about something like the, uh, Woody's backyard barbecue going into Hollywood studios? Do they, do they actually finish that? Do they, do they put that in there? Do they need it? If capacity's down for a period of time, you know, they were putting that in there because capacity was so high and they needed another restaurant. So, uh, I also want to wonder what they end up doing with the star Wars hotel. Again, it, those are things where, like, again, they, they look at uh, demand and maybe you you put your focus, you put your attention on the attractions that you know are going to go in. But something like the Star Wars Hotel, Ben, you're right. Maybe we push that off for three well, to five years. Especially because of the, the, the key behind that was the exclusivity of it. And with exclusivity right. comes the price point. You know, how many people yeah. are going to be able to stomach a vacation that they were looking to, to, you know, raise the price level to that was going to be their break. You know, the, the first barrier of how, how much can we get away with charging people to do some of this stuff? Well, this resets all of that. And part of me thinks they're far enough. They're not far enough along on that for them to, to completely bail on it or let it sit dormant for many more years before they uh, go back and try to finish that thing out. They probably have the structure in place, but I don't know how much of the technology within that structure they have. And we know that that's an inv- uh, a significant investment. Um, so, yeah, at the very least, I would expect to see that delayed. The other area where um, they can reduce capital expenditures is the cruise line. They have four ships. They have three in development, 21, uh, 21 22, and 23 uh, are the years that those ships are supposed to launch, and they are developing another island called Lighthouse Point. Um, I could see, and I don't. They, the question was asked on the last earnings call: What is the status of the ships? What has been paid for? Uh, that was not answered on the earnings call, which is interesting. I don't know if it was deliberate or. Uh, I mean, I would imagine when you, when you contractually bind yourself to build yeah. a ship. I doubt there's a provision that you can stop halfway through. But um, well, there's there's force majeure in so many of these things that I wonder if there is something that that allows them to get out of uh, one. How much, I don't know. How much of the cost you, is like Disney gussying it up too? Like you build yeah. the physical structure and then you need to Disneyfy that structure. 
I would expect a force majeure contract to protect the builder if a tornado hits the shipyard. I wouldn't expect it to protect Disney uh, because of what this really is, is economic infeasibility. Mm -hmm. It's not really, it's not an act of God in the sense that it makes completion of the contract impossible. It just makes it uncomfortable for Disney because they have to lay out money that they don't have to. That's not typically within the scope of what I would expect to be covered by one of those clauses. The number they put out there was that this is on the uh, earnings call uh, last week that capital expenditures would be reduced by nine hundred million dollars. Nine hundred million dollars doesn't co- cover the cost in full of one of those ships. Yeah. Um, I'm going to guess one of those ships is at minimum a billion and a half, um, but they're probably closer to two, if not more. I, don't, I haven't bought a cruise ship in at least five years, so I don't <laughs> know what the uh, <laughs> what the price point is. You're still you're still cruising on a 2015 model. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you exactly. peasant. <laughs> Um, what? But do, does that even like have a, a helipad? I guess, <laughs> no, it I guess, doesn't. It doesn't. I'm stuck with like six waterflies, uh, waterflies, water slides, <laughs> <laughs> and a go kart track. Josh, I guess and uh, murder hornets. <laughs> Josh, I guess our uh, Amazon affiliate link's not doing as well as we thought it was. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. I'm not I noticed that our royalty shit. checks haven't come in. <laughs> nope. Um, but that was that was just the the uh, capital expenditures that they're mentioning on that earnings call. Uh, we'd be ignorant to think that, the, that those are going to be the only cuts. That's just what they're acknowledging to shareholders last week. Was there that, some language in that, though, that that is in relation to all the stopped construction that's going on right now? Not necessarily budget cuts that they're looking to do at the moment, but because of the stopping of everything, yeah. that that's a reflection of money that they're not spending uh, probably until next fiscal. That's That's... that's not saying the, they're, the way they're that they cutting 900 million was, from everything. The way that they phrased it was very deliberate. Um, yeah. I, but your, your point is well taken. Uh, let's see how it was phrased. Uh, the company's plans to reduce capital expenditures during the uh, pandemic would be reduced by $900 million by way of pausing refurbishment and construction projects. So they used the word pausing. Uh, they didn't say they're canceling anything. But that, that was they also, never would. That yeah. was also followed up by the Chapek comment of the going through every project with a fine tooth comb right. uh, to look for savings. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you're going to see budgets slashed on things or just things cut out. Right? There's and no I think, no buzzy in the uh, uh, Guardians queue. It's yeah. not happening. <laughs> um, there's a ransom for his uh, for, for Buzzy's return. That's been reduced by fifty percent. Yeah, maybe, maybe they could sell <laughs> Thanks, Buzzy. And it, for, they could sell Buzzy for like five grand to an NBA player and drum up yeah, some money. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Get Robin Lopez to pay for the shit. <laughs> uh, do we have anything else on coronavirus? I have a couple of just errata from the from the APA document I wanted to hit. Things that I thought made some sense. I don't think they sure. really warrant spending a lot of time on. Uh, but a couple of things that maybe make sense, uh, maybe don't. I'll let you comment on that. Um, limiting the number of things that people can bring into the parks. Um, I'm not, I read that at first. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But as I think about it more, I'm not really sure how that translates to protecting contamination. Um, it seems to me that, for example, if I were able to bring in uh, things from home that would keep me from having to purchase things on property, that that would actually reduce the amount of exposure that I might have. So uh, just a thought. Uh, one thing that I do think makes absolute sense, and I certainly hope that Disney will implement it, um, would be to create uh, a function in the app to report uh, a COVID-19 sort of a medical medical problem. So okay. if you see, uh, and that could be, you know, someone's sick or you see, a, 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 you know, I don't know, 
you see someone throw up or something that could create some sort of contamination that you would have a quick and effective way to report that. That makes My sense device to me. has a phone function where I can call the authorities. No. no. <laughs> I hate talking on the phone. Anything that requires human. I've been trying to social distance my whole life. This is my, this is my chance. Make um, it a citizen's arrest. You sneezed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One, oh, by the way, yeah, my prediction, if we're going to, Tim asked for predictions, my prediction is that whatever impact the actual virus has on Disney, the absolute lowest common denominator is the people. That's where oh, the problem absolutely. is. There are going to be fights because somebody sneezed without covering their mouth. There's mm-hmm. going to be, uh, you know, people that are losing their shit because someone's not wearing a mask and they think they should be. I mean, the... That's actually a great point that we'd have to face with my brother who does not always cover his mouth when he coughs. Right. (laughs) And, you know, certainly he has justification for that. But, you know, people are not perfect. Right. Uh, And there is always someone who is convinced that what you're doing is, you know, below the standard of what is acceptable to them. Uh, You know, we call them Karens, I think is the correct term. (laughs) Yes. yes. And, uh, you know, that is going to be what I predict is going to be, the, it's going to be an absolute fucking train wreck. And I suspect Twitter will be fun to watch as these parks reopen. Um, one section of the APA document that was interesting to me, this is called facility operations and maintenance. And one of the items that they have in there is to consider reducing number of touch points for workers, for example, by leaving access doors open rather than requiring someone to open and close them. So, if you think about the utilidors and you know all of the the things that Disney does to sort of isolate backstage from onstage, um, you know there's an opportunity where you could at least in theory reduce the number of points that people are going to touch, and I suspect strongly that they won't do any of that. I, I can't imagine, yeah. uh, you know, and I get why. I, I see the you know the competing interests there, but it's just something that maybe that's why Disney didn't contribute to this because there's things in here that they just don't want to do. I'm purely right. speculating. Competing interests is, is the right term. I think that's that's correct. And that's, that's what all of this is. It's, it's a balancing yeah. act, right? You could just leave the yeah. parks closed and you know err totally on the side of caution, or you could you know open them up with no precautions and err total on the side of you know capacity. But it's going to be something in the middle. Um, right. Other things that make sense to me: reduce cash handling, encourage people to make purchases online. I think all of that uh, makes sense, and I think that. You know, it's one of those things that it could transform the Disney experience to some degree. Um, gift shops are, uh, you know, uh, part and parcel to a Disney park. I mean, um, it's hard to imagine them building an attraction that didn't exit through one. So the notion that that sort of purchase is going to be transferred completely to an online experience, again, not very practical in light of how Disney chooses to build its business, which, you know, has been tremendously successful for them. Um and then the last comment I wanted to share is just one that I think really sort of sums up what I consider to be the primary thrust of this document. Um, and it says, guests will appreciate seeing employees cleaning and sanitizing within an attraction. And, and that's <laughs> largely what this is about, you know, is just yeah. projecting that image that they're doing a good job. And, and maybe that's fine. You know, maybe, maybe the sense that cast members are being watched will compel them to be more careful and to do a thorough job of cleaning. And I do think that that can help. So maybe if you Venn diagrammed what they're doing for optics and what they're doing to actually make a difference, maybe the overlap will be uh, effective. I, I certainly hope so. To be clear, I'm not uh, I'm not rooting for the virus here. I don't want to see anyone get sick. Um, <laughs> we but you, come down. We are anti-coronavirus on this podcast. I just want to be clear because I, I, I could feel the email coming in now. 
Um, but you know, the fact is there's unintended consequences when you take draconian actions to things like this and, um, the world has to restart and theme parks are a part of that. Certainly I don't consider them to be as essential as some other businesses, but, um, you know, but they matter, right? You know, we don't spend hours and hours and hours recording these shows because they're irrelevant. They're, they're a part of life. They're an outlet valve and a source of, of joy for people. Hopefully this podcast is the same thing most of the time. (laughs) Uh, and perhaps more importantly, in terms of their importance, is they employ a tremendous number of people. And, yep. and those people have families, and those people have medical needs, and they need to have an income in order to, to address those. So there, there's, there's a whole other side to this coin, which is the providers of these services that we enjoy. And I want to see those people uh, become you know, you know, employed again and, and see them gainfully employed and have income so that they can get the things that they need, which in turn results in them spending money at other businesses. I mean, this is, this is how economics work for those of you who don't know. And there are many of you out there, uh, as evidenced by how you vote. Um, you know, I just want to see things get back up and running. I'm looking forward to our one star reviews on iTunes after Josh's rants. I actually have two to read here. Uh, so that's a perfect segue. The last two. So we are still holding steady to 4.5, which I'm very proud of. Um, but two here, one from, I'm going to read your name. You posted it there. Sean Nyberg says a podcast that, t- first of all, the title WWNT collaborators. That's what the yep. title is like. All right. A podcast that teams up with Tom Corliss from WWNT is not one that I'm going to continue to subscribe to. He's a horrible person. This show had some good moments, but this sullied it for me. Um, okay. I, I don't know if appearing on someone, being able to actually have discourse with someone with whom we've disagreed, if that makes us a uh, collaborator with him, then fine. Certainly, Sean is not required to subscribe to this show if he doesn't want to. And then the next one, a little briefer, uh, titled Avoid, <laughs> again, one star. <laughs> From Chef Mickey. So I think his tastes are already suspect. Uh, it says, long-winded and over-analyzers. Well, well, Chef Mickey, your grammar sucks. He's not don't let wrong, the door hit. I mean. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. I can't really disagree with that one. No, that's true. When was that? That one uh, must be new. I don't think I saw that one. No, I just saw I was trying to pull up the uh, first one, and I saw that one. I'm like, oh, well. I know Lori just show. left it five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? There's plenty of people so underanalyzing like things. Smash that like button, which we don't have, and uh, give us those five-star reviews on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Like yeah, those yeah. reviews and get red. <laughs> Tim needs the yacht. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. If you do have any questions or topic ideas, or you just want to bitch at Josh, you can email us at martycall.gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the username... Excuse me, at Marty Called. It's not excuse me, Marty Called. It's just at Marty Called. Uh, or join in the discussions in our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Marty Called. We'd also appreciate our listeners bookmarking that Amazon affiliates link, which I believe in the last uh, two years has generated $23 of income. Uh, that's over on martycalled.com. You can do three, all your. That's $12 million a piece. <laughs> How do you think we get the yachts? Uh, you can do all your Memorial Day shopping through our link. It doesn't cost you anything, but helps fund the show with purchases you're going to make anyway. Ben, where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter at RealSkipperBen, and you can find my top 10 column in every issue of Attractions Magazine. Josh, uh, aside from Alex Jones, uh, meet us. Where can we find you online? Don't pigeonhole me, man. I will eat my neighbor. Uh, I can be found at CoronaFreeDisney.com. And also, uh, frogsgay.com. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I 
have nothing more. You can find me at WDW Theme Parks on Twitter, www.themeparks.com. That's going to do it for this show. Have a good one, guys. Love you. Have a good night. Local recording going. I do. Stand. Damn up. it, Ben. You always forgetting something. I'm good. Not me. Not, not <laughs> doing it correctly. He gets yelled at. <laughs> Sorry, it sounded like it was. Uh... Anyway. <laughs> All right, we're gonna go with Sure Digital Maximum Quality. Now recording. All right, everybody got their local going. Yep. Nope. Damn it. Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs>